Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. What's up with activism and what it is missing? By Elizabeth Wainwright. During my term as a Green Party district councillor, I was once publicly congratulated by the local Extinction Rebellion, XR, group for taking on the new role of cabinet member for climate change. A week or two later, I was questioned at a council meeting about whether I was part of XR. Opposition councillors wanted to know if I'd be using their extreme rent-a-mob tactics in my role. The local XR group are kind and knowledgeable and are making things happen. But to my council questioners, this seemed to matter less than the fear of the other. In this case, what they perceived to be a mob of environmental extremists that might do harm to the council. It works both ways. I've also seen activist groups paint all elected councillors with the same brush, assuming none of us care. It feels like there is little grace and a lot of judgment going around. I've been curious why local non-activist residents and councillors might not be keen to engage with activist groups. The term activist is a broad one, and this article isn't long enough to analyse it, but activist groups are generally engaged in activities to bring about social, environmental or political change. Some tell me that they're put off by what they perceive to be self-righteousness, judgment, anger and their hippie identity. I am put off by some of these things too, however much the media might falsely amplify these qualities. But still, perceptions close down relationship and possibility. And this is one of the things that keeps me at arm's length from the activist label, particularly when it gets caught up in group identity and expectation too. At a time when we need to see change in so many things, the state of the environment, politics, social equality, I've been wondering why I feel a distance from the activist identity. As well as getting elected, I've taken part in marches, signed petitions, joined social and environmental action groups. I want to walk alongside others who are doing something about the things that matter. But I have struggled to find the in-between of slacktivism on the one hand, supporting causes largely online with little commitment, an intense commitment to a particular group or tribe on the other. And I'm tired. Because despite the protests, volunteering and organising, the challenges seem bigger than ever. These efforts are important. But protesting the status quo isn't enough. I look at the NGOs, political groups, roles, funding proposals, slogans, meetings and glossy branding that are often part of activism and civil society more broadly, and are tools I've used myself. And I find myself doubting that these things can really bring about the change we need in our relationship with each other and the planet. We need more than better branding or more funding or more campaigns. As Audrey Lord said, 
The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I find myself distancing from the urgency of activism, volunteerism and campaigning in their current forms. As well as form, I also feel a disconnection from engagement with and discussion of the issues of our time. In my involvement in social and environmental action over 20 years, I've sensed the shift brought about by rapidly evolving technology and media, which means social and moral norms are evolving too. I felt public discourse and action become less patient, more certain, more fragmented, with little room for curiosity and open conversations, sometimes explicitly through cancel culture, or more subtly through othering and unintentional judgment. I think of a song by Sam Fender called White Privilege, which includes the lines, Everybody's offended. I'm not entirely sure the nitpicking can count as progression. Nobody talks to each other for fear of different opinions. Perhaps that closing down of conversation is in part down to social media and its algorithms, which respond well to noise, performance and oversimplification. It is not a space designed to help us relate across difference and understand each other. Yet this is vital if we are to create the change needed in ourselves and in the world. I want to be part of meaningfully and wisely addressing the world's sickness, not desperately and loudly treating its symptoms. I have been wondering if there's another way I might think about creating change. Author educator and social critic Bell Hooks wrote her book all about love because she was thinking about how we love and what is needed for ours to become a culture where love's sacred presence can be felt everywhere. She laments the lovelessness that is pervasive in our society. She goes on to say, profound changes in the way we think and act must take place if we are to create a loving culture. Sometimes the issues at stake demand that we weep, raise our voices, get angry. Jesus turned over trading tables in the temple when he saw the sacred space had been turned into a marketplace. He got angry. But ultimately, he asks that we love our neighbours, including our enemies. And yet sometimes I wonder whether we know how to love in the world as it is today. Hook says, In the realm of the political amongst the religious, in our families, and in our romantic lives, we see little indication that love informs decisions, strengthens our understanding of community, or keeps us together. In her lectures on ending racism and sexism, she notices that her audiences, especially the young, become agitated when I speak about the place of love in any movement for social justice. Despite the great movements of social justice having emphasised love, her listeners seem reluctant to embrace the idea of love as a transformative force. We need to see love as a transformative force, though. We say we believe in it. We make films and write poetry about it. We see it guide communities during collective experiences like global pandemics. We turn our faces towards it. We seem to want it. Perhaps this is where the hope is, that we want love in its various forms, even if we're embarrassed to say so. 
Love is not naive. It does not ask us to be nice and polite or eternally optimistic. Its presence does not remove negativity, disagreement, people who let us down. But I think it gives us the eyes and tools to work together and to stand in compassion before judgment. If we take love and affection for our neighbour and places seriously, understanding what it looks like in practice, then movements for change can begin right where we are, in our language, in our community, in relationships that ripple out. In a placeless and disconnected age, perhaps this is the kind of activism that would help us heal ourselves as well as the world. Author Simone Weil has said that the gospel makes no distinction between the love of neighbour and justice. I am becoming drawn to a love-led activism, an activism that is made from the hard day-to-day work of listening and patience and loving what's sometimes hard to love. It might mean taking time to build relationships with people who aren't like us. It might mean breaking out of our institutions and tribal groups, hearing each other across difference and imagining new possibilities together rather than form ever tighter clubs. It might mean getting soil, not screens, between our fingers, rooting in relationship, slowing down, paying attention. Whatever it looks like, it must appeal to both activists and non-activists, because we must all be involved in calling forth new worlds. The Bible is full of calls to love justice, to defend the weak, to provide for the poor and the hungry, to defy the authorities when we need to, but to do all this, as Paul says, rooted and grounded in love. Micah says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? As Bell Hooks knew, justice goes hand in hand with love. It is hard for one to exist without the other. Perhaps it doesn't matter whether we're catalyzed by anger, indignation, love or care. But it matters what we go on to do with that spark. We can choose to open up conversations or shut them down, to walk with others or retreat behind ideological lines, to stand in judgment or relationship, fear or love. I think about what might come next when I stand down as a district councillor at the next election, following a pull to do justice and to love kindness more than belong to a political tribe. If we choose, we could build a loving culture, weaving a social fabric where activists and non-activists can see past current paradigms and feel able to work together, holding each other up as neighbours, whilst nurturing beauty, hope and the becoming world. It may have no clear identity, it may not suit the noise of social media, but this is work that I want to be a part of.
The Godfather of Authenticity by Stephen Backhouse. Do you value authenticity? Do you distrust herd instinct? Do you like it when people walk the walk and practice what they preach? Have you or someone you know ever faced an existential crisis, rejected cultural religion or taken a leap of faith? If you can answer yes to any of these questions, then you have been shaped by the words and life of the Danish thinker and rabble-rouser Søren Kierkegaard. He died in 1855, never knowing an audience for his philosophy outside of his native Copenhagen. Yet today, more perhaps than any other, Kierkegaard stands as the philosopher you never knew you knew. Søren Kierkegaard lived during the Danish Golden Age, the most civilised era of Europe's most civilised country. Danish science, poetry and thought were at their highest. Political ideas were thriving and the economy booming. Copenhagen's chattering classes were at their most confident. It was into this coterie of smug satisfaction that Kierkegaard burst like a bombshell. The result was a man of deep contradictions a literary genius who poked holes in literary pretensions, a brilliant philosopher who openly mocked philosophy, a religious thinker who wrestled with faith, God and questions of ultimate meaning, yet he despised priests and theologians above all else. He is one of history's most profound Christian thinkers who devoted his entire life to attacking Christendom. The weapons in Kierkegaard's arsenal of this attack are the gifts he has bequeathed to the modern world. For Kierkegaard, the main problem with Christendom was the way that all matters of ultimate personal meaning were answered by one's membership to the group. To put it bluntly, Europeans and Americans assume they are Christian, not because they have made a compelling decision regarding faith, but simply because they are European and American. The result is a boon to nationalism, but a blow to authentic existence. Our modern culture values pliant civilised citizens above all else. People are rewarded for aligning their purpose according to that of their nation and punished when they deviate from the path. For example, when they make ultimate life choices that put them in a collision course with the values of their home culture. The outcome is that modern life amounts to not much more than herd instinct. We live in mobs which require personal authenticity to be subsumed into the crowd. As a result, Kierkegaard saw that the modern civilization Christendom built is largely inauthentic and deeply inhuman. His solution for all this civilised inauthenticity was the leap, often understood as the leap of faith. For Kierkegaard, leaping is what happens when you risk jumping out of your comfort zone for the sake of becoming a real person. The leap is away from meagre safety and out into the unknown. When people make the leap, two things happen. One, they find themselves, and two, they find their enemies. It is only by rejecting the false identity offered by pliant membership of the herd that one can find one's authentic self. And yet the herd hates being rejected. 
People who refuse to let their inherited culture and nationality dictate their whole story will soon find that nation and culture do not offer unconditional love. The leap of faith is a leap into the unknown, which offers fulfilment, but it is also a leap away from that which falsely offers security. Kierkegaard is often described as the father of existentialism, which is simply another way to describe a philosophy based on the assumption that your existence matters. You are more than the country you were born into, the race you are a part of, or the religion you inherited. Your existence matters more, and your authentic identity is grounded in more than simply being a cog in a faceless system. You have a say in who you are and who you will become. Existentialism, then, is a way of living and thinking which attempts to recognise the responsibility you have for your own existence. For Kierkegaard, most human beings elect not to face the existential questions of their own life, content to remain in the warm bath of the herd. But there will always be a minority for whom meaning and truth matter more than the cold comfort of common sense. Kierkegaard was deeply suspicious of the sense that we all share in common. The wisdom of the crowd might be good for all sorts of things when it comes to daily life, but it is spectacularly bad when it comes to matters of ultimate meaning. Kierkegaard recognised that existential minorities are rare, good and often deeply unpopular in their lifetimes. His two favourite examples were Socrates and Jesus, public thinkers who loved authenticity and other people above all else, and were killed as a result by the powers that be. It was for this reason that Kierkegaard felt himself on a collision course with Danish Christendom, the religious patriotic culture of his day. Sure enough, when he died in 1855, it was in the midst of public outcry and demonisation by the established church. The attack came from two fronts, but the undercurrent was what today we would recognise as nationalism. For daring to suggest that the Danish golden age might be smoke and mirrors, Kierkegaard was pilloried by the popular press. Mean-spirited cartoons lampooning his physical appearance were published weekly and children were encouraged to mock him in the streets. It is said that a whole generation of boys were not called Soren because of the association with his name. For their part, the official representatives of Danish Christianity were also appalled at Kierkegaard's cheek for pointing out that their beloved apparatus of church state and patriotism, bore zero relationship to the way, words and life of Jesus. The culture that Christendom was proud to have built was, for Kierkegaard, the very thing that was stopping people from discovering their true selves, authentic existence and real love. Behind the sentimental language of the love of nation lurked a hard-hearted herd mentality built on exclusion hypocrisy and pride. Kierkegaard's existential protest against religious nationalism was largely unheeded in his lifetime. Yet in 1944, the World War was still raging. 
U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt called an aide into his office. Have you ever read Kierkegaard? asked FDR. Well, you ought to read him. It will teach you about the Nazis. Kierkegaard explains the Nazis to me as nothing else ever has. I've never been able to make out why people who are obviously human beings could behave like that. Kierkegaard gives you an understanding of what it is in man that makes it possible for these Germans to be so evil. In 1959, Martin Luther King Jr. was invited to write about his path to peaceful and lasting social change. In Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, he wrote about discovering the philosophy of Kierkegaard. Its perception of the anxiety and conflict produced in man's personal and social life is especially meaningful for our time. In 1965, a young African-American man, barred from using his main library due to racist nationalism, gets his reading from a different source. In reading Kierkegaard from the book Mobile, here was someone who was seriously wrestling with this terror, this suffering, this sorrow. It resonated deeply with me. Cornell West would go on to study philosophy, eventually becoming a leading public intellectual and activist for racial justice. To this list of Kierkegaardians, we can also add Ludwig Wittgenstein, T.S. Eliot, Jean-Paul Sartre, Dorothy Sayers, Flannery O'Connor and Hannah Ardent, to name but a few. Surely the inkling author and publisher Charles Williams was correct when he wrote of Kierkegaard in 1939. His sayings will be so moderated in our minds that they will soon become not his sayings, but ours. If you value authenticity, if you mistrust the herd instinct of crowds, if you have had an existential crisis... If you or someone you know has ever taken a leap of faith, then you are living and thinking with words and the long lines laid down by Sam Kierkegaard, whether you know it or not. My Conversation with Jennifer Wiseman by Bell Tyndall the details of astronomy, the workings of astrophysics, the enormity of space, the fact that the universe is still expanding by the moment, the mystery of what lies beyond what we can see and even predict. Those are things that do not sit comfortably in the confines of my brain. It's as if my brain is allergic to the sheer enormity of the subject. My mind does deep. It does not take lightly to vast. And that is precisely why I so thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with astronomer, author and speaker, Dr. Jennifer Wiseman, for the Reenchanting podcast. Jennifer is Director Emeritus of the Programme of Dialogue on Science, Ethics and Religion for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She is also a senior astrophysicist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre. Science is a means by which Jennifer is able to live in a wonderfully curious life, marvelling at the natural world and what lies beyond it. 
When the narrative of science and religion being ultimately and inevitably at war with each other is the narrative that gets by far the most amplification, it was really interesting to hear how they coincide so powerfully for Jennifer. When talking with her, it becomes clear that they coexist. They are the symbiotic forces that fuel her wonder at the universe. A wonder that is undeniably infectious. As she pointed out, the very fact that we have a curiosity about the universe we find ourselves in is in itself something to marvel at. We are here. We've come through this 13.8 billion year development of the universe to the point where we can have this self-contemplating life that recognises a bit of where we've come from and how we connect to the universe. These are surely the thoughts that existential crises are made of. Speaking with Jennifer made me feel small. Small in time and small in space. I suppose dwelling on the enormity of an ever-expanding universe will do that to a person. After all, there are around 100 billion stars in our galaxy that we know of, the closest of which is four light-years away. The vast majority of these stars have their own solar systems, hosting their own planets that orbit around them. And that's still only within the confines of our own cosmic neighbourhood. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies in our observable universe. An infinite mystery that sits far beyond these numbers. Since our conversation, I've been left with this simple but salient thought... We're incredibly small. But further to that, I've been pondering the notion that there's a good kind of small. And perhaps we are it. We may be just one of the eight billion inhabitants of a pale blue dot in a universe that stretches far beyond the capacities of human understanding and measurement. But there's a profound beauty in that. It does not equate to a feeling of non-consequentialism or oblivion. On the contrary, it is deeply empowering. It is, after all, the powerful reality upon which much of the 12 steps of recovery offered by AA and NA is built. There is a mysterious and yet obviously tangible power in coming face to face with our own smallness and surrendering to that which is deeper, higher, bigger than us. Learning a little about Jennifer's childhood, living among the Ozark Mountains with evenings spent gazing up at a canopy of stars that stretched from horizon to horizon, it was enchanting to hear about her career has been an outliving of a childhood appreciation for the things that are so much bigger than us, mere humans. If you have a pull towards all things astronomy, this episode is undoubtedly for you. If you've ever pondered what science and faith look like when they're not entering the ring from different corners, readying themselves for a showdown, this episode is also for you. If you're craving enchantment of the most cosmic kind, this episode is for you too. This conversation with Dr Jennifer Wiseman will be a refreshing antidote to the disillusion that comes with assuming we are the centre of the universe. You can find the conversation with Dr Jennifer Wiseman on the Reenchanting podcast.
Challenging Transhumanism's Quest to Optimize Our Future by Oliver Dürer Welcome to the Age of Transhumanism. In this world, the goal is to overcome all limitations and restrictions that hold human beings back. Science, technology and medicine should allow us to live longer, healthier and better lives. So runs the promise. But is there a peril that goes along with it? To answer that question, we need to take a closer look at the phenomenon of transhumanism, particularly the view of human beings that lies behind the glittery promises of an optimised future. Transhumanism is a global movement that seeks to use all available technological means to enhance human beings. From curing illnesses and overcoming physical limitations, to expanding our mental abilities, the movement aims to overcome all obstacles to the current human condition. More precisely, it seeks to overcome all obstacles to the individual's freedom to live the life he or she wants to live. In the attempt to enhance life, transhumanism veers beyond traditional forms of curing impairments, like compensating for bad sight with a pair of glasses, and ventures more into experimental fields, like manipulating the human eye to see ultraviolet or infrared light. Emotional or cognitive deficits, such as lack of concentration, are supposed to be overcome by smart drugs, and even genetic modifications and prostheses are considered to expand human capabilities. The goal is to create superhuman abilities. The holy grail of this movement is drastically extending the human lifespan, if it is in a state of health and vigour. Ultimately, transhumanists want to overcome death. There are two paths within the transhumanist movement on which they hope to arrive at this sacred goal, a biological and a post-biological way. Let's have a look at biological transhumanism first. The focus here is on our current carbon and water-based bodies. Weak and fragile as they are, biological transhumanists must make do with them to achieve the greater things they envision. Human beings must be treated with drugs and a host of prefixed technologies, bio, gene and nano. Aubrey de Grey's project of postponing death by achieving a longevity escape velocity is a good illustration of the movement. De Grey is convinced that novel biomedical technologies can achieve a limitless extension of the human lifespan. If we can make rejuvenation therapies work well enough to give us time to make them work better, he writes, that will give us additional time to make them work still better, and so on. The time gained with a particular innovation must only be greater than the time needed to achieve another such advancement. Therefore, he argues, the effective death of people alive today can be staved off indefinitely. De Grey is not alone in transhumanist circles to predict such outcomes. Google's Ray Kurzweil has a similar view. We have the means right now to live long enough to live forever. Such optimistic prognoses bank on a view of human beings as being essentially a body machine that can be controlled and improved at will. The key to unlocking its potential 
is information theory. Think of human beings as an algorithm and, in principle, all their problems can be solved by engineering. Cultural critic Evgeny Morozov poignantly called this approach technological solutionism. From a solutionist perspective, humanity is increasingly seen as the problem that needs solving. Thus, not only must we develop new technologies to guarantee human life and freedom, but humanity needs to adapt. Those necessary transformations of the human are what inform the first dimension of the term transhumanism. The second path is post-biological humanism, which takes a more radical approach. Here, the focus is on leaving behind our current bodily form altogether and radically transcending the limitations of what it means to be human today. Those alterations, such transhumanists argue, will be so radical that calling the result human will no longer be adequate. The preferred means to achieve the future state are taken from the digital sphere, algorithms and information processes. The view of the human as a machine becomes more specifically the human as a computer. Mind, spirit and consciousness are understood to be the software within the hardware of the body. Human beings are perceived to be biological computers and thus in direct competition with digital computers. And those are becoming increasingly powerful by the hour. If human beings want a seat at the table in the digital future, they must find a way to merge with and dissolve into the digital sphere. Or so the transhumanist narrative goes. For post-biological transhumanists, the ultimate goal is called mind uploading. The idea is that we can upload our minds, selves, to the internet and achieve immortality. At least if all we are is the sum of information process in the brain and as long as the internet infrastructure is still available. Mind uploading requires leaving behind our current biological form of life altogether and dissolving into virtuality. The vision of virtual immortality is why post-biological transhumanists tend to place their hopes in information technologies, software algorithms, robotics and artificial intelligence research. They aim to overcome and entirely leave behind the human as it is. This move to transcend informs the second dimension of the term transhumanism. But can those transhumanistic approaches really deliver on their promises? Human beings have always tried to improve themselves, not least through technology. What is new today is how transhumanists define better and some means of realising those perceived benefits. Solutionist approach to life, transhumanism discards large swathes of traditional techniques to improve human beings and their lives. In classical humanism, at least from the Renaissance to the 1970s, human improvement meant education, moral, intellectual and practical formation and refinement towards a concrete ideal of humanity and the shaping of a society that enables such formative processes. But in the age of transhumanism, there is a tendency to believe that we can delegate such hard work of the self to a new 
technocracy and their algorithmic tools, who, to put it mildly, may not always have our best interests at heart. The main problem, however, is that ultimately we cannot delegate our future to machines because, after all, we aren't machines. Instead, we must learn to live with ourselves, with our limitations and our finitude, or we will never be free. Freedom only ever begins once we learn to let go of ourselves and start living for and with others. The reason for this is that freedom is best conceived not as a mere choice to do what we please, but the liberty to live a truly fulfilling life, which almost always includes others. Many of the things that make a future worth wanting in the first place are shared goods, relational communitarian cultural values and practices that needn't be optimised or automated at all, at least not technologically. When building a sandcastle with my toddlers, that process needn't be optimised, which realistically would mean excluding the toddlers from the process altogether. Rather, the process of doing it together is the point. Political decision-making processes, to take another example, also don't have to be automated or made more efficient through algorithms. Struggle in deliberating how our society should look is the point. Without such moral deliberation, our public life is diminished. In many cases, the slowness, strenuousness and inefficiency of such processes is a feature, not a bug. Having this in mind changes the questions we pose in light of novel technologies. How, if at all, can they be integrated into our lives in such a way that they open up the world in its complexity, allowing us to experience the fullness of life and enabling us to shape the future we really want? It is time to rediscover and bring back religious and humanistic traditions of self-formation into our public debates about the future. Far from being relics of the past, soon to be discarded, they could provide us with tried and true values, practices and virtues around which we can organise our societies in the digital future. They provide us with the tools to unlock the sources of care and the will to create a better social framework in which human beings and technology find their place. The future need not be transhuman to be better. Being fully human is quite enough. What a campfire encounter teaches about making enemies and building empathy. In her book, Shalom Sisters, Living Wholeheartedly in a Broken World, my dear friend and peacemaking conspirator Osheta Moore defines enemy as anyone or any group that exists beyond the reach of my empathy. I don't like the idea that I have enemies. I prefer to congratulate myself for crossing divides into transforming relationships with those who have been marginalised by power. I certainly don't like her suggestion that there are any people or groups of people that exist beyond the reach of my empathy. For it asserts that I play a role in constructing my enemies 
and that, as John A. Powell argues, my circle of human concern is far too small. Not long ago, I was confronted by both my expertise in constructing enemies and the limit of my empathy's reach. It was the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic and a time saturated with upheaval. Migrant and refugee communities were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. The Black Lives of Armored Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd had been prematurely extinguished by white vigilantes and law enforcement. A next racial revolution was at hand and I was privileged to be a part of political advocacy efforts, direct non-violent action and creative civil disobedience. I had been shot twice by non-lethal rounds while holding a non-violent line between protesters and law enforcement with fellow clergy, giving me a tangible experience of absorbing state-sanctioned violence on behalf of those who have been for generations. In local protests, white militia groups would regularly descend in acts of intimidation with diesel trucks, offensive flags and guns. While I was contending with those disadvantaged by inequitable uses of power, I didn't realise that I was fabricating a new enemy. After months of this, I and my family were fatigued and in dire need of a change of scenery, so we loaded up our camper and embarked upon an off-the-grid adventure in the wild wonderland that is US America's Pacific Northwest. We set up camp next to a high alpine lake and were thrilled to have the entire place to ourselves. My enthusiasm waned as the sound of a diesel engine drew near our camp, my joy evaporated when an enormous truck towing a camper trailer stickered with brash political statements parked right next to us. In my mind, our tranquillity had been invaded by folks of the other political persuasion who clearly had no regard for the unknown dangers of COVID-19. Without even seeing their faces, I concluded that these were the ones who stood on the side of the very injustice I was fighting against. In my daughter's mind, we had some new neighbours to build relationships with. Within moments, she introduced herself and volunteered to organise a water adventure with her brothers and their two kids. For hours, the five of them built friendships while I deepened my fabricated narrative about who these people were and why they were parked right next to us. I'd like to say that we crossed over to their camp and introduced ourselves, but I can't. Rather, it was the two adults from their camp that crossed over to ours. They wanted to meet the parents of the extraordinary young woman who lived with such relational intention. As they drew near, my fabrication seemed to be confirmed. Both of them wore T-shirts plastered with American flags, guns and imagery that boosted their preference for law enforcement over black lives. His and her lower lips bulged with wads of tobacco and they both wore handguns on their hips. They introduced themselves and proceeded to rave about my daughter, which softened my heart toward them. While in conversation, I could sense that he was evaluating my camp. Eventually, he shared his two observations. First, he saw my bow. I had recently taken up archery with the intention of learning how to hunt for elk 
in the forests of my homeland. I liked the idea of ethically harvesting meat for my family. I knew that I needed a lot of practice in order to be successful. I had brought my bow with me so that I could practice, and he indicated that he had brought his bow as well. Second, he saw that I had an insignificant amount of firewood for the length of time we'd be camping. With a grin, he declared that he hadn't brought any firewood. Then, after motioning to the fallen trees around us, mentioned he had a chainsaw instead. I invited him to shoot his bow with me. He offered to cut more firewood for us. A nominal invitation and the offer of generosity sparked an uncommon friendship that is transforming me. Our family spent the weekend together, sharing meals, extended fireside conversations and wilderness adventures. We shot arrows at targets and I heard tales of his elk hunting adventures. At the conclusion of our not-so-solitary camping trip, I asked him if he'd be willing to teach me how to hunt elk. He responded with an emphatic yes and invited me to join him in the woods one month from then. Thirty days later, the two of us met in what seemed to be the fusion of a mythical jungle with a magical pine forest. It was dark and steep and the bush was impossibly thick. For hours we hiked together up and down mountains he was the teacher and I was the student. That evening, we found ourselves around another fire, preparing our food together yet again. With our meal plated, he opened our next conversation with this. So I've been researching you online. He proceeded to share with me that he had seen images of me in protests and war zones with political leaders, movement leaders and faith leaders he had read many of my reflections about peace and justice and saw that I had even written a book about it. He closed with, I gotta know, what are you, FBI, CIA? <laughs> After I had a good laugh, I explained more about who I am, what I do, why I do it, and how my faith is the fuel behind all of it. As I did, it dawned on him that I represented those on the other side of his political and ideological persuasion. At one point he leaned back from the fire, his 9mm pistol glistening with its reflection, and declared to me that he was an avowed 3%er. In the US, 3%er is a term utilised by white militia groups based on the myth that only 3% of settlers were willing to pick up arms and fight for independence during the Revolutionary War. It is a designation for those who are willing to pick up arms again when they sense that their rights and advantages are being trodden upon. After his declaration, he asked, Is that going to be a problem? I didn't perceive his question as a threat, but rather as a next invitation. I understood him as wondering aloud if the divide between his ideology and mine was too expansive for us to continue building a friendship. I responded with this. Your convictions and the way they shape your life are different from my convictions and the way they shape mine. Yet I sense that we both wonder if bridging the gap between us into a friendship is better than remaining enemies on opposite sides. For us to do so would likely make ours the most 
uncommon friendship in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, if you are. With a nod, he leaned back and we finished our dinner, reflecting on all that we had experienced that day. With the rise of the sun, we were back on the trails, but the conversation had shifted. He began to open up his life to me with surprising vulnerability, and I did the same. We began to recognise that what we shared in common far outweighed our differences. As the miles grew, so did the reach of my empathy. Three years later, our friendship continues to deepen and it's transforming me. I find myself reflecting frequently on Jesus' revolutionary teaching on enemy love. I'm inspired by the notion that Jesus was the only one who ever took us beyond convenient understandings of neighbour love to love of enemy. I'm learning that in order to love my enemy, I must first understand my enemy. To do so requires that I confess my efficiency at fabricating enemies, lament the limits of my empathy, and dare to cross over any divide equipped with curiosity and compassion. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Seen and Unseen Aloud. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, why not share it with them?